Picture this, you're sitting down to watch a live poetry performance. The first poet takes the stage, and as they begin to read, they're accompanied by a live jazz band. If this sounds intriguing, well, you're in luck. International Jazz Poetry Month returns to Pittsburgh on May 2nd. The festival features more than 50 artists, including local jazz icons and poets from Algeria, Cuba, Sudan, and Ukraine. Tickets to watch online or in person at City of Asylum's home on the north side are free. Get yours at cityofasylum.org before they're gone. Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, the synagogue shooting trial ended last week when the man who killed 11 worshippers at a Squirrel Hill synagogue was sentenced to death. It was a long trial with lots of challenging testimony, and someone close to me attended almost every day, my mom. Her name is Ellen Serloff, and I'm talking to her about why it felt important to be there. It's Tuesday, August 8th. I'm Mallory Falk, and here's what Pittsburgh's talking about. One of the moments of levity was um, the woman who is head of the 1027 Healing Partnership, which was formed to provide support and therapy to the community and really to anyone who needed it after the shooting and continuing up to today. Her name is Maggie Feinstein, but we call her either the candy lady or sugar mama <laughs> because there was a business apparently that was kind enough to offer free candy. Maggie would come in and fill her pockets every day with just tons of hard candies. And she would walk around the the different halls of the courthouse because there were people in different locations um, handing out hard candies with a smile on her face. And so just, you know, a friendly smile, a greeting, a hello, and a piece of hard candy <laughs> gave us a, a, a moment of, I mean, just really a small moment, but but a teeny moment of levity in the midst of the horror. You went almost every day. Why did you want to attend? Just by way of background, this happened in my own backyard. So I had been members of two of the three synagogues that were attacked. I grew up in Tree of Life, and I raised my family, including you, mm -hmm. um, at Tree of Life. And then at the time of the shooting, I was a member of Dor Hadash, and actually I was the president at the time of the shooting. You know, this was family, friends. And as a result of that, it, it was important to me to be at the trial to represent my congregation, Dor Hadash, and also to provide whatever measure of support, no matter how tiny that might be, to the survivors and the victims' families, these are people that I knew, to have an opportunity firsthand directly to once again thank the first responders, to thank the team of prosecutors who worked so tirelessly to get us to the point that we got to. But also, there was a part of me that, that became clear during the trial, and this is certainly not about me, Mallory, so I hope you understand. I'm not, I do not mean to suggest in any way that I was a victim here. But I, you know, attended the Saturday services at Dor Hadash, not every Saturday, but many of them. And that day, I was going to services, and I was going late because I was a little under the weather. 
and I happened to arrive at the synagogue at the same time as the SWAT teams. I was at the corner of Shady and Hastings, and when I got to the corner, I just saw all these vehicles rushing by, and I saw an entire line of police cars that were parked all the way down Shady Avenue from, you know, the cross-section where Tree of Life is. And so when I was sitting in the courtroom on the first day, I was thinking to myself, and certainly the first thought I had wasn't about me, but it did go through my mind looking at the defendant, this man just sitting there in his you know, button-down shirt and sweater and khaki pants, expressionless, that that man would have shot and killed me. He wanted to kill every Jew he could find there that day. So personally, I felt the need to see him um, tried convicted and sentenced. And and it was a relief to me when it happened. And I know there were some other reasons as well that you wanted to be there, kind of related to just how historic this trial was. Right. So so as a Jew, as a lawyer, um, this was an extremely important moment in history. Obviously, there have been many times in the history of the Jewish faith where Jews have been persecuted, sometimes at the hands of state government. And here we had the state prosecuting the perpetrator of the crime. And I've always had an interest in trials and in history. And so when you combine the two, I've always found interesting reading about sort of on a large scale, the Nuremberg trials and on a much smaller scale, the Eichmann trial or Klaus Barbie. And this um, is for trials of Nazis. Of of Nazis, right. So the fact that I was able to be here and in, in person, hear a trial, witness a trial, one that I think is historic in terms of bringing anti-Semitic white supremacists to justice, it was really meaningful. And I guess the last thing, um, during the trial, there was an opportunity for the victim's family members to tell the world about their lost ones and their loved ones. So instead of being another statistic of a mass murder, which unfortunately is sometimes what happens, I had an opportunity to hear these wonderful things about these wonderful people who were leading full and happy lives before um, the tragedy that took place on October 27th. And, And that was special, knowing that the world, anyone reading about the trial would get and got a chance to hear about these people. And I know you weren't the only one who was attending the trial. Um, There were people from your congregation, Dor Hadash, who showed up almost every day or took turns attending. How did folks make space for this in their day, you know, day after day after day for two months? Well, certainly part of it was that most of us who attended were retired, are retired. And so we had the space in terms of time Mm -hmm. to be there. Um, Obviously, it was really difficult hearing and seeing these things. I think that basically those of us who were just observers were able to support each other by talking to each other, by hugs, by tears. But I do think at the end of the day, this was primarily about support for the victims and the survivors. And speaking for Dor Hadash, Jerry Rabinowitz was a beloved member of our community. I don't think you'd find an individual, certainly not within Dor Hadash and and probably not anywhere, who would have an unkind word to say about Jerry. And the same holds true for Dan Lager, who was seriously wounded, and for Marty Gaynor, who thankfully escaped without at least physical injury. Um, And so 
to the extent we could support them, that that was something we needed to do. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with Jerry and what he was like. I think what I'd probably be doing is confirming everything that's been said about Jerry since the day of the shooting. Um, so I first met Jerry in, I'd say, 2010 or 2011 when I became a member of Dor Hadash. I was this stranger who kind of dropped in, and Jerry sat down next to me on the bench where you enter Tree of Life and started asking me questions like you might of somebody that you don't know. So are you a Pittsburgher? You know, why did you join, join Dor Hadash? Where were you before? Those sorts of questions. And during the entire conversation, he had that huge smile on his face that you've heard about since October 27th. And at one point during the conversation, I just interrupted him. I didn't know him. And I said, Jerry, are you really this happy all of the time? And what you've, how you've heard Jerry described is, is true. He, he was, he just made you feel good. He made you smile. He made you feel happy because he was so happy. The other thing, I learned so much about Jerry after the fact, about what a caring and giving doctor he was, what a caring and giving person he was, how incredibly well-trained he was in his profession. And these are things you didn't know because Jerry himself would never talk about them. He was as humble as he was a, a brilliant physician. Yeah, I think the story that really kind of circulated about him after October 27th was that during the early days of the AIDS HIV crisis, he would hug his patients at a time when physicians wouldn't even treat, let alone touch people with HIV. And it seems like that really just captures who he was. Yeah. And that's an example. I, I had never heard that story until Jerry's memorial service. And that just reflects who Jerry is, right? He would never share anything about himself as a sort of, you know, look at me. Do you like to dance, look at beautiful art, eat gourmet snacks, people watch? Well, mark your calendars for Friday, June 7th for one of my favorite parties in Pittsburgh. It's Mattress Factory's 25th Garden Party. The theme this year is make-believe, and it's all to celebrate and support the creatives in our community. There's going to be live music, an open bar, an art auction, and probably my favorite, the costume contest. Trust me, I will be judging yins and so will everyone else there be playful be imaginative explore your magical realm because this is a theme party you want to come dressed to impress you must be 21 and up to attend and rest assured every dollar raised goes directly towards supporting the museum its art its education and all of its community outreach initiatives get your tickets now to the 25th mattress factory garden party they are in our show notes and online at mattress.org. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. What was it like for you 
as a member of one of these congregations to to sit through this testimony, to see some of this evidence. I know for me, it was challenging to see images of spaces that I grew up in and felt so comfortable in it, where I, where I learned to love Judaism and love the traditions and participate in the traditions, to see that all become evidence in a, a federal hate crime case. Well, I mean, obviously it was extremely difficult. I, you know, I'll mention that the couple of days of trial that I did choose to stay away from were the days when they showed the graphic crime scene photos and autopsy photos. So fortunately, I don't have those memories in my mind. But, you know, for example, I want to preface this by saying, obviously, pictures involving the people who became victims or or the survivors of shooting was the most difficult part of all. And so what I'm talking about is other photos that just happened to strike me. And one is something I knew nothing about until I heard the evidence and saw the photo at the trial, which is that at synagogues, there are walls with memorial plaques on it that have the Hebrew date of death of your relative. And at Tree of Life, those plaques are located in a number of different places, but including on the walls outside Pervin Chapel. And there's a little teeny light bulb that is beside the person's name. And every year on the anniversary of their death, their Yortzite date, um, someone from the synagogue goes and turns the candle on from sunset to um, sundown the following day. And one of the pictures that was shown in evidence was actually um, a bullet-ridden wall where there were holes through some of the, the plaques that were there. Mm-hmm. And that was actually the wall where uh, my grandfather, uh, there was a plaque for him there, Jacob Serloff. And so it was it was just at the moment when I saw that, that was jarring in a way, obviously, uh, you know, quite different from, from the real impact, but it, it was just something unexpected. I think something that has sort of always been haunting about this to me is thinking about the very last time I was in that building before the attack. It was for a talk about the rise of white supremacy and white nationalism in this country in the wake of Charlottesville, when people were in the streets chanting, Jews will not replace us. Um, A member of your congregation, Dor Hadash, is an expert on white supremacy and white nationalism and was giving a talk to the congregation. And, you know, I was not living in Pittsburgh at the time. I was living in Texas, but I happened to be home. And we went to that talk together and thinking about how the last time I was in that space before the shooting was to hear about the rise in white supremacy in this country. And the next time I was in that building, it was to bear witness to what that led to has just been chilling to me. Yeah, wow. It's it is to me. I didn't realize. I remember going to that talk with you. I didn't realize that that was the last time you had been in the building before the shooting. Wow. Yeah. Um. So all of this brings us to last week. What was it like for you to hear the jury come to this verdict, decide that this man should receive, you know, the most severe punishment under the law for this crime and should be sentenced to death? I felt great relief both on the day of the death penalty verdict and on the day of the sentencing. And the reason I say that, and and I'm not going to get into what my own personal views are on the death penalty or the views of um, various members of any of the congregations or the families, but what I will say is this. 
this defendant, in my opinion, got an extremely fair trial. He was provided with the top of the top of defense counsel. Um, Judy Clark, who represented him, is reputed to be one of the best, if not the best, death penalty attorney, defense attorney in the country. Judge Colville went out of his way to um, treat the defendant with um, respect and dignity and um, and make sure that he got a fair trial. And the prosecutors also did an incredible job. It was an extremely well-tried case. And the reason I felt relief is because our justice system worked. So now, you know, it's been nearly five years since the attack. What does it feel like at this point to have at least this chapter of the story come to a close? For me personally, I'm really relieved that it has ended. Um, it's been a long time in coming. I went both this past Friday night and Saturday to Arab Shabbat, which means the, the night before, and Shabbat services at one of the three congregations that, that lost its valued and loved members during the shooting. And the services were called healing services. Um, they read psalms. There was, you know, just a very little bit of talk about moving forward, not moving on, but moving forward. And um, one person described it as being on a train for four and a half years and getting off at the last stop and not knowing where you are, but knowing you have an open field ahead of you and yeah, you can begin to move forward. And so I think, I know I felt a sense of relief and I know in looking at people around me, I can't speak for them, but there was certainly a bit of a more lightness in the air than there had been um, just a couple short weeks ago. And I know for you, it's important to end where the story really begins with the 11 people that were killed that day. Right. And I and, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to say their names, which should never be forgotten. Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Malinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, Cecil Rosenthal, David Rosenthal, Bernice Simon, Sylvan Simon, Dan Stein, Melvin Wax, and Irving Younger. May their memories be for a blessing. Ellen Serloff was president of Dor Hadash Congregation at the time of the attack and is still a member. She's also my mom. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with me. You're welcome. Thank you, Mallory. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. We'll be back tomorrow with something totally different. Until then, take care.